Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Big news today, or maybe not news, but a fun podcast, episode 26 of Hashing It Out. I'm Dr. Corey Petty, my co-host Colin. Say hello, Colin. Hello, Colin. I'm going to start seeing what I can get you to say with that, with that lead-in from here on out, just to change it up. Um, today's oh, don't episode... don't change it up. Consistency is king, man. No, never. <laughs> today's episode, we have new Cypher team on to talk about um, a POC. Well, they've been working on it for quite a while, but they did a demo of uh, a fully homomorphic encryption library written in Python at uh, F Berlin a couple of weeks ago. And I liked it and selected what I saw. I wanted to get them on the show to try and talk about um, what exactly it is, where it's currently at, and what the like the implications may be. Um, so, uh, Tux, Mike, nice to have you on the show. Why don't you give each, um, our audience a quick introduction as to who you are, what New Cypher is, and uh, we can start talking about the weeds after that. Sure. Um, so I'm Tux. I am a cryptography engineer at New Cipher. I work on our proxy re-encryption network and also have been doing some research in fully homomorphic encryption lately. And uh, I'm Michael, uh, the CTO of uh, New Cipher. And um, I guess I probably need to cover a little bit about uh, what New Cipher is, what we are doing. So uh, our uh, first product uh, is uh, proxy re-encryption network, which is pro- which is um, like you can say that it's something which allows to manage permissions uh, for encrypted data um, in cent- decentralized networks, but uh, doesn't have to be decentralized networks. Um, so imagine that all of the data is encrypted, and you can uh, um, you can define who can read your data and who not without trusting any central server to do that. And to achieve that, we use uh, proxy re-encryption. So something which allows to transform ciphertexts from being encrypted under one key to be encrypted under other key. Um, but while we've been doing that, uh, we've been asked many, many times whether we can not just share encrypted data, but whether we can compute over encrypted data, whether we can do something like... Uh, Private privacy preserving smart contracts, um, and uh, we thought uh, whether we can do it. There are multiple approaches how one would be able to achieve it. Um, uh, like for example, once uh, Vitalik pointed out that multi-party computation can be used for privacy preserving smart contracts, um, or you could use uh, secure enclaves, which is kind of a popular approach right now because because of being practical performance-wise. But uh, there is another thing which is called fully homomorphic encryption, which I think can be used uh, for this kind of stuff. Um, So, um, and 
what fully homomorphic uh, so we actually tried, decided to try this path um, and what fully homomorphic encryption is um, it's the specific source of encryption which allows to do arbitrary computations uh, over encrypted data so you can run your program with encrypted data as an input you have encrypted data as an output and whoever executes the program doesn't know what the plain text data is ever um, and um, um, and you you can have um, this program defined in one of two ways it could be uh, it could be a logic circuit so then you can pretty much implement anything or you can make it um, a little bit more practical for uh, for some subset of applications more like for data analytics uh, where you can um, run it so that it can do um, let's say additions and multiplications homomorphically in principle you can uh, convert logic circuits to into this way of operation but then it will be a little slower so um, but logic circuits are more universal so that's why we are uh, we've tried um, fully homomorphic encryption with those um, and as I said the hope is to uh, to be able to do privacy preserving smart contracts using uh, fully homomorphic encryption so for the general audience, can I can I try and explain FHE like the way I understand it is that you have this program, all right, this uh, yeah. this piece of code, and this code operates on encrypted data. I know you said this, but I just want to reiterate it. Mm -hmm. It operates on encrypted data and does general purpose compute on this data and will give a encrypted output. And at no point does this program know what that encrypted data originally was. And it, and it doesn't know what the meaning behind the encrypted output is. And so you can, as a person, go, I'm encrypting my data for home, fully homomorphic encryption, uh, cryptic compute. Send that packet or send that package to the, the decentralized, let's just say decentralized, the, the unknown compute system, the, the untrusted compute system. And it will do the compute for you on your behalf and then send you a result back which then you can not only decrypt but also verify is correct. It is is follow the rules of, of the original encryption, correct? Or the original system. Yeah, well, that is correct. Uh it's doesn't necessarily include the verify parts, but as probably we know, with any deterministic computation, you can do the verify part uh on in kind of in a in a different way. Let's say if you look at TrueBit, uh, what uh, what it is intended to do, it's uh, it provides incentives to to do computations while ensuring uh, correctness of these computations, uh, provided that they are deterministic. And uh, homomorphic encryption quite fits into that, so you can uh, you can uh, implement the verify part uh, totally independently of the. Um, of the FHE, although there are some cryptographic ways to do verification also. Well, could you also send an expected result over? And if you get that expected result back in par as part of your result set, then you know that it's been done properly because it won't be garbled or wrong or anything like that, like just a pass through even. Um, would those kind of things work to verify? Yeah, well, I guess uh, you can even... Um, um, there is just one certain way which you need to run the... Uh, the this homomorphic circuit in. So if there is any other node which runs this exact circuit, 
it should arrive uh, with exactly the same uh, ciphertext. So you don't even have to download this result and decrypt it to verify. In principle, you can have this verified totally independently by the network itself, just because if you repeat this same computation over encrypted data, you should get the same ciphertext. Uh, whether this ciphertext is uh, correct or not, of course, depends on how well you assemble the circuit. Maybe your homomorphic program has a bug, and uh, uh, but this is then uh, uh, this is up to you as a developer and the compute uh, like whoever computes that um, can has no ability to know whether whether you did have a bug in it or not, they just executed, they got the result, here is the result. So, um, I'd like to try and frame sure. this a little bit. Uh, first off, I want to say, if you are interested in the proxy re-encryption aspect of what NewCypher does, um, we've had uh, Tux on previously in episode 11 of Hashing It Out. Check that out. That'll tell you all about that part of the company. Um, and to frame the context of um, fully homomorphic encryption as it applies to decentralized networks, which is basically what we focus on in this in this podcast, um, that I guess the standard kind of analogy people would use here is um, like looking at Zcash. And that is uh, defining a, a set of rules, growing up with primitives that allow you to then um, send transactions and the nodes that verify these transactions don't understand all of the um, variables associated with the transaction, such as who it's going to where it's going and how much, but they're doing it properly, and you can be you can you can be guaranteed that they're doing that that validation properly without them knowing um, what they're doing. And so, if you extrapolate that to private smart contracts, a big bane uh, or or downfall or problem that a lot of people see with public blockchains is that all of the information stored in the smart contracts are open and public to see. So imagine, if you will, adding privacy to something like that where you can have the decentralized trust that's associated with public blockchains and the privacy associated with not public blockchains so that nodes can validate and do proper computation on deployed smart contracts, but you could never see the data inside of them. That's kind of the goal here, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Can you, can you talk to that? That's pretty much the, uh, uh, the, the, the concept of it. Another point that, uh, I'd like to point out as well is that um, on a lot of people have uh, problems with putting encrypted data on blockchain on public blockchains because the data will sit there for a very long time and it will essentially it's always going to be there right it's non-malleable um, it's going to be there for the years to come who knows how long certain blockchains are going to go um, but the point is is that eventually at some point maybe some of this encrypted data will also get within range of practical attacks such as um, like uh, quantum computing, right? And so uh, what happens is if that, like, uh, for example, everything on Bitcoin right now, ECDSA and things like that may become vulnerable in the future and we'll have to hard fork to, to do those things. Uh, with fully homomorphic encryption, the algorithms we use there are actually also post-quantum. Um, so if, if things are put on the blockchain, uh, they are also quantum resistant now. So it's uh, one of the cool components of it. So just by happenstance, it happens to be a little more future-proof in terms of being able to be hacked later on down the line? Yeah, just a bit more future-proof cryptographically. Uh, who knows what the future holds in terms of cryptanalysis? Um, but so far, the assumptions that 
FAG makes. If you want to look into this, it's called the learning with errors uh, hard problem. Um, uh, if you want, uh, it, it turns out that this is a really strong assumption, um, and it's actually very difficult in the quantum and classic setting. Can you repeat that? The, the a learning with errors. Yeah, learning with errors. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, the, there's several variants of it, but the assumption it is that it's uh, without getting very very in depth on it. Um, it's essentially if you have some vector plus some noise or some error, as it's called, it's very hard to invert that and figure out and learn the secret from it from some vector. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, and so this just assumption has been uh, very strong and strongly held and very and proven time and time again now. Uh, so it's looking very good for the future for this. Okay, I think a good a good uh, I guess next step here would be to talk about why has this not done bef been done before? Why is this difficult? And um, what have you done that makes you believe that you could you're, you're pushing it in the right direction? Yeah, and, right. And to 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 kind of tag onto that a little. Uh, we do use some form of homomorphic encryption right now. Corey mentioned Zcash earlier. So what differentiates this from those other things? Right. Um, so the main component of Zcash is also like ZK snarks, right? And like, and zero knowledge proofs. And the, and the cool thing is about fully homomorphic encryption is that fully homomorphic encryption implies that zero knowledge proofs exist, but zero knowledge proofs don't imply that fully homomorphic encryption exists. Um, so, uh, we can actually start constructing primitives and things like zero knowledge proofs in the homomorphic setting uh, to build things like that. Um, but if you're asking why this has not been done before, it's because previously uh, there are several large, fairly large problems getting in the way of actual utility of these uh, uh, homomorphic schemes like ciphertext size and um, uh, performance speed as well. Uh, so one thing that new cipher has done is that we have uh, demonstrated that it is a uh, very strong, that there is a very strong ability to improve the performance of this using uh, GPUs and ASICs as well. Uh, so that's one thing we've done with new FHE was construct a very optimized variant of another library called TFHE. And it has shown that it is very performant in this domain. And we've, gotten it to around uh, six to 7,000 oper logical operations per second, depending on the graphics card. And uh, it shows that we can actually make a very performant, uh, usable scheme in terms of smart contracts, because you may not need anything much faster for that. Um, another problem with that would be ciphertext size, because the ciphertext actually expands greatly. So to encrypt one bit, you're talking around like a 16,000 bit or 16,000 X expansion. So one bit equals around two kilobytes. And so that's the next spot that you need to, to go down on their schemes that uh, actually enable that as well and, and also keep the performance. So uh, that would be like the next step is in research is to shrink the ciphertext size, uh, get a better performance margin still uh, and research how to actually get these primitives out there and, and build more primitives. Yeah, but it was actually an interesting story how um, how we uh, no, uh, discovered that it's actually possible to accelerate uh, this this scheme. Um, the library called TFHE appeared in I think 2015 or something, um, and um, um, while just 
just being curious, I looked at it and uh, it uh, seemed like the main bottleneck over there was fast Fourier transform um, and it was all happening on a CPU. Um, but uh, uh, then I remember that uh, actually I was doing a PhD in physics. I was doing experimental physics and a friend of mine was doing theoretical physics. Um, and theoretical physics is not just uh, doing formulas. It's actually doing computations on uh, uh, trying to simulate uh, physics. So anyway, I was uh, doing like doing working on quantum gases, Bose-Einstein condensates, and a friend of mine, uh, Bogdan, uh, worked on simulating those. So... Um, and actually, he managed to accelerate those simulations by a factor of 100 um, because, uh, like, he, he actually try, tried to parallelize that on a GPU. The main bottleneck over there was fast Fourier transform. So I remembered that, and sounds like the bottleneck is very similar here. So I talked to, uh, I talked to him, uh, like, pretty much... Uh, this year and he said yeah sounds like it's possible to accelerate so we we hired him and in a couple of months he uh, accelerated uh, the tfhe library it proved out to be uh, uh, also like a uh, factor of 100 acceleration it was a little bit um um it was a little bit more uh, complex than just uh, accelerating uh, a fast Fourier transform because if you if you do just that, uh, you uh, well it takes time to transfer data to the GPU and back, um, and uh, you you will not gain any performance if you do that all the time. So you need to keep everything on GPU. So you need to re-implement the whole algorithm on GPU. But when you do that, it's like apparently pretty fast. So uh, turned out to be exactly the same uh, acceleration. Um, as far as I remember, like, FFT was accelerated on uh, by NVIDIA itself, but uh, just the library which a friend of mine wrote was a little faster, and he exploited some, uh, uh, some properties of the data which is worked on uh, in this uh, in, uh, encryption algorithm, so you don't have to, uh, to do certain things in FFT, so it's not like standard FFT and then it's even faster than uh, than it's actually uh, it actually is when it's standard but I can certainly imagine you can uh, probably do some hardware to accelerate uh, homomorphic encryption um, but what I think uh, it's probably it probably makes sense to uh, to take what is there um, using GPUs, implement something practical and very, very useful like privacy-preserving smart contracts, and then there will be economic incentives for people to uh, create fast implementations of, uh, um, of um, homomorphic encryption, whether it's in software or in hardware, uh, and uh, then we probably will have kind of um, a kind of economic competition of like whoever makes it faster will earn uh, more money by um, mining and at the same time making their um, the platform faster. So it wouldn't be like useless proof of work. It would be probably some useful computations which are incentivized to be accelerated. Wow. So explain to me a little more about this FFT problem. Um, I actually want to know more about how this this actual encryption works, uh, how how it from a more 
um, basic standpoint. I want to know a little more of the technicals of that. And can you kind of describe to me what um, what a, what a lot of this looks like and why why this is so revolutionary, and maybe even provide some analogies on what the real revolution is that 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 happened. What was it, 2014 or something, when the first FHE oh, was created? No, no, the first FHE was created in uh, 2009 by Craig Gentry. Um, and yeah, it was uh, it was a very interesting interesting way how he uh, managed to do it. I think uh, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think uh, there was homomorphic fully homomorphic encryption which could do like finite uh, number of operations. But then, uh, yeah. So the thing is, is that Craig Gentry didn't create the first homomorphic scheme. He he's the one who made it practical in his thesis. If you if you read his thesis. He talks about how we can take a somewhat, it's called somewhat homomorphic encryption, meaning that it allows a both addition and multiplication, right? So we have like, everybody's familiar with like uh, PIA, uh, the PIA crypto system, which allows add, like additive homomorphic encryption, right? So you can only add stuff. Um, with Craig Gentry, he created this concept of bootstrapping, which allows you to take a scheme that is also, that allows additive and multiplicative. And he figured out a way to have it do arbitrary number of computations. Before this, we had schemes that would allow a certain number of operations, uh, but it would they kind of they they weren't that great. They were very bad, had horrible performance. Um, that, again, limited in the number of operations you can do, which obviously limits the number the type of algorithms you can do as well. Uh, so what Craig Gentry created was this thing called bootstrapping which allows you to just essentially encrypt your your private key or your secret key for this homomorphic scheme under the same key. Uh, this follows something called the circular security assumption that you can look more into there. Um, and what it does is it then decrypts the data in the homomorphic domain and then re-encrypts it again with the key so that it refreshes this, this text. So the problem with schemes up to the state were that you, as you would add more data to it, it would, uh, or as you do more computations to it, it would add noise to the ciphertext, meaning at some point, uh, the, like you just can't do any more computations to it. It's, it's like too much signal, too much noise to signal, right? And so what he did, he called this thing called refreshing the ciphertext uh, that just allows you to drop that noise ceiling below or to drop the noise below the, seal, the threshold again, so you can perform more, more computations. And so where we are at right now in research is that this bootstrapping component of it is beginning to take the majority of the, uh, 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 the majority of the, of the computation and the performance. Uh, so there's a lot of room for it to be fixed there, but yeah, there are schemes like uh, leveled homomorphic encryption, where you can like define and, you know, rotate the knobs of it and the variables and, and make it so you can perform uh, an arbitrary number of computations up to a certain point, and then after that you can have no more. So the idea is that maybe you could construct a leveled scheme that only allows the number of operations needed to perform this one algorithm, and you can do it in like a CCA secure manner rather than a CPA secure manner. Yeah, but I guess for for privacy preserving smart contracts, it's actually pretty important to uh, to be able to do unlimited number of computations because you maybe you have output, but not necessarily you want uh, the original 
the original user to decrypt this output. Maybe you want to uh, execute some more and more methods using that as an input and leveled homomorphic encryption probably wouldn't really work with that. Uh, so you need to do bootstrapping at some point. And um, that's, uh, I guess that's why we're so excited about this, uh, uh, this scheme because it does do bootstrapping and uh, can do like arbitrary complex programs. So, okay. So you're able to do these arbitrary complex programs, but what are your current like requirements to actually execute this? Meaning like I didn't see your Eth Berlin talk. So step me through what, what that was like, uh, what, what, what you can do with, with decentralized networks using this and what are the room, what kind of improvements in roadmaps you see coming forward in this? So ETH Berlin, we won um, the ETH Berlin hackathon uh, by building uh, what was called Sputnik. Uh, Sputnik was just like a proof of concept kind of demo to demonstrate that, you know, there is a language that you can write. There is a parser that can parse that language. And then there is a virtual machine that can execute homomorphic instructions. Uh, so it's very, very primitive and kind of hacky still. Um, but essentially what it allowed us to do was just define a, a, a program state uh, and operations on that state. So you can do logic operations like XOR and not, etc. cetera. Um, and every time the program would execute, it would output the state in a Merkle tree. So the, con the idea at the time was that you could use this Merkle tree to kind of as like a verified computation kind of thing where it's like, oh, let me take, uh, you wouldn't be able to prove that some logic was done, of course, because you can't, that would require like zero knowledge proofs and, and stuff to prove that logic was performed. Uh, but what we can do is prove the flow of logic. So if you have given, if you were given a ciphertext, uh, you would be able to prove that a, the output of that ciphertext was on the, was, was performed on chain, for example, uh, where you can look it up on the blockchain, hash your ciphertext and use it and just like see like, oh, where, where, when was this done? If somebody gives you like some output of data, you want to know that a computation was done on it. So you can look it up in the blockchain and see it. Um, Furthermore, with uh, decentralized computations and, and networks like that, um, the solutions probably lie in verifiable computation um, and things like that. I actually didn't quite fully understand that. So you're saying you, submit, you, you have a system, a VM, that does the fully homomorphic uh, computation, correct? Right, yeah. And that was separate from the EVM, I take it. Oh, yeah, it was separate. It was yeah. just a Python program that was powered by new FHE. Okay, and then you committed Merkle, Merkle trees, or you basically, to the blockchain, which then yeah. provided proof that the execution was done. Um, how do you retrieve your results from that and, like, decrypt it? So you'd have a client which does the encryption of your, your data, You'd onboard that data somehow. I don't know what that mechanism quite is. Yeah, basically, you would you can think of it as you store all the encrypted state off chain, right? Um, some off chain using some off chain storage, and you uh, pack every step in the computation uh, to the blockchain, something like that. I feel like I feel like this is like maybe summed up as like a fully homomorphic auditability. 
Yeah, that's pretty much what it's computation auditability. You can so all we did was just commit the Merkle root yeah. to the to the chain, and then we can pick any ciphertext at any point. So the way it worked is yeah, the I way I, I I imagined it was like you you look at it as like a Merkle tree. You put have, to perform an XOR, you need two ciphertexts to perform an XOR on. So you have input A and input B, and then you XOR it. What it essentially is it just creates another ciphertext which is right above it, right? So you can do that. And so if we put this in the form of a Merkle tree and hash everything together up that up that way, then the, the Merkle root and everything would essentially be somewhere similar to like the output of the actual program state. Um, so the idea is that you could take your ciphertext that you want to know if this was actually used in the computation. You can't, like I said, you, this doesn't prove how it was used. It, provo- it proves that it was used though. Um, so you can take the ciphertext, hash it, and then say, okay, I, I just generate a Merkle proof for me that says that this is was actually used. Yeah, I would say it was it would it was probably the first step to to implementing um, this kind of um, privacy preserving blockchain as a side chain to Ethereum. Um, and let's say if if something went wrong, if some computation was done incorrectly, then in this uh, Merkle tree proving uh, proving the results of the computation, you would have some uh, some disagreement. So you probably could have the network of nodes uh, uh, recalculating uh, all the dependencies of the broken part while leaving everything which was computed correctly uh, still in place. So for example, that uh, that could be what this Merkle tree could be yeah would I see be just like for. being able to generate fraud proofs for various things yeah right right so but it's not like fully uh, not fully working uh, uh, fully homomorphic uh, side chain or whatever it's just a proof of concept um, another in- important thing is that uh, it was uh, it is using uh, the state um, so it's like a state-based um, platform kind of um, and uh, this is an important distinction from uh, from Zcash so Zcash um, since it, it actually it, since it uses zero knowledge proofs um, it has to have UTXO kind of model for transactions so you have uh, all the Zcash blockchain you have um, some um, you know coin transfers between uh, users on the network and uh, if uh, well, basically nobody can read uh, coin transfers of other people. So if you observe this blockchain and you never transacted on Zcash, you just see some encrypted uh, uh, garbage. Although you can verify correctness of that. Uh, but if you ever transacted on Zcash, you need to parse through all the blockchain and say, ah, okay, so this transaction and that transaction were my transactions, so I can look at those and figure out how much money I have, right? Um, so that's kind of what Zcash allows you to do, but you have to have all the blockchain downloaded. And uh, in Ethereum or like smart uh, contract platforms like that, you uh, actually have to have states. So you have uh, every user having his state. Oh, well, you have global state, actually. Um, and uh, the state uh, shows, like, what is the current uh, situation on the blockchain. So uh, you don't have to parse through all the history. Um, and uh, with fully homomorphic encryption, you also have state although it would be kind of state per user, but it's still state, so user doesn't have to parse through whatever happened. Uh, uh, the user just can see what uh, 
what the user actually has right now. I'd like to try and rephrase a bit of what you just said um, and the way I understand it to see if I'm, I'm getting it correctly. And that's, that's, that's focusing on the differences between Zcash and what, you've, and what you're working on now. Um, and, I, and, and Zcash is done the way it is, is because, and, and, and especially with the UTXO model, is because the way you do that type of homomorphic encryption is completely different. And so yeah, in order to... Yeah, it's zero-knowledge proofs. Yeah, so I just want to like frame this in, like a, in, like, in a way that people can understand uh, like the, the, mm-hmm. the, okay. the differences here. And the, the way that they've done it, the way that they implemented it, is done by... Um, you have to basically constrict the rule set down to a, uh, for efficiency purposes, a small number of possible rules. Um, in order to generate, do the, do the trusted setup and generate all the primitives necessary to then construct proofs. Um, and the way that you're doing or you're implementing homomorphic encryption is a much more general approach that doesn't require you to define a very small rule set in the beginning. Is that necessarily mm. right? I feel like, I feel like they, they've been... It, well, Zcash uses partial homomorphic encryption, multiplicative specifically in the ZK uh, proof. Uh, so yes, I, I, I'll just go ahead and answer that. I think that is that is correct, right, uh, Michael? I, Tux? I, I, would, I would like you guys to expand a bit more on what exactly you're trying to get at that rule set. Like okay, what, so what the, you in order to like set. verify something is done right, like I, the way I've always defined, I guess, zero-knowledge proofs of somebody is that um, you define a rule set. It's very like it's very axiomatic, and in order to in order for you to verify that something is done properly in a homomorphic set, you have to then encode all of those rules using fun math to create sure. primitives that you then use to then verify stuff that that like say yeah right. it followed all of those rules and and the more rules you in, introduce into the system, the more difficult it is to to create those primitives. Right, right, yeah, and. Uh... I guess I'm guessing what you are trying to say. And uh, in full homomorphic encryption, you can these rule you can have these rules running totally, um, like arbitrarily totally complex. Of, yeah, arbitrarily complex. And then you, if you want to, you may prove you can prove something about the result you've got, but not necessarily about the whole process. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you can build like a, this rule set, like you're talking about it. What you're defining are logic operations on literally just encrypted data. So the way you can do this is you can build protocols. It's it's very low level, like you said. So you can you can build protocols that allow for certain things to be done, like zero knowledge proofs uh, and and other forms. So for example, in the case of like Zcash, if you need to build a Z, like a, just a zero knowledge proof of like some some amount of money, there's probably there's an algorithm like a logical uh, comparator that you can build to be like, is it greater than this amount, right? And so, yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like uh, expand on why this is so much more fundamentally generic than yeah, something I mean, like zero knowledge, the way, the way Zcash implements zero knowledge proofs. Well, I, I still right. think of it myself as the difference between partial and fully homomorphic encryption when you can make that distinction. And I, I, I call it partial, I'm, I'm not sure, is that the official term for it? That is. Yeah, but um, you can do homomorphic encryption on a subset of operations. So Z, you know, ZK Starks uses um, 
multiplicative operation is is fully is homomorphically encryptable. So that's how it does its zero knowledge proof. It only focuses on the idea that you can homomorphically encrypt on the multiplicative property. So A times B equals C. Encrypted A times encrypted B equals encrypted C. And then you can decrypt C and get your actual result. But that only works for multiplication. You could do that for other things. Addition. Possibly, I guess division would probably be an inverse case of multiplication. I'm not sure if that would make a difference in the, the scheme. But you could do this on specific gates, specific things that you can do. Um, the key differentiator, as I understand it, with fully homomorphic encryption is that it's general compute. You can do multiplication. You can do addition. You could do XOR logic. You could do literally any... And by the way, it's probably better to think of it as as a logic gate than it is uh, it, from a logic gate standpoint than it is like the mathy standpoint of multiplication and whatnot. You could do AND, right. you could do NAND. Well, with NAND, you've got a universal gate, basically. Um, is it NAND or NOR? Whatever. You could do XOR. Like you could do these gates in a completely generic way uh, where you encrypt the input data, operate on it, maybe even take multiple sets of encrypted op- input data, operate on all of them and return an encrypted result. Um, and right. uh, then you can, as the person who submitted the data, can decrypt that result, but you don't need to set up, hey, this is only for multiplication. Hey, this only works for addition. Hey, this only works for XOR. You know, you can you can literally go, this is just takes any piece of encrypted data that uses our scheme and outputs an encrypted output using that scheme. Is is that answering your question or clarifying it enough, Corey, or did I do that wrong? Is that what you were getting at? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you I think you put it really eloquently there because the way it, you you have to think about it is it's like this this logic gate, right? It's it's building like that. It's much easier to think of that than addition and multiplication. And so yeah, we and by the way, you said NAND and NOR. I think both you can actually use for universal gates. Um, but yeah, so the way I've I've actually started looking into how to construct this stuff is to look just at digital circuits, uh, just because they use the exact same things, and I'm just like reading back and forth on how to like. Uh, you would construct uh, some sorts of like some of these algorithms. And it's, it's pretty simple. The, the only problem that we have now with, uh, with our current FHE schemes is that like branching, for example, is actually fairly difficult. There's a lot of research in branching FHE. And, but the problem is because it's encrypted and you would be breaking uh, CPA security. If you were to be like, if this, then that, like, that's just something you can't do. Right. First of all, you, you've said CPA a couple times and something else. Um, I actually don't know those algorithms, and I feel like I should. Or, oh. uh, that acronym, and I feel like I should. Could you explain that? Yeah, so it just means it's semantic security. It's I, it's uh, indistinguishable under chosen plain text attack. So essentially, it's like if an attacker has the ability to encrypt certain messages, uh, can they leak some information about, uh, about the key or, or something like that or about the message and break confidentiality like that? So the idea of what I'm saying by branching is like, usually you'd be like, if this, do, if this, do this, else, do that, right? So uh, with FHE, you actually can't do that because you have to do it, you have to construct programs in a linear fashion. Uh, so if you were to do it, if, else, then it would, you would essentially have to have two different programs operating at the same time and concurrent to say like, if this is the output, do this. And if this is the output, do this. Right. And so 
it's, it's complicated. There's a lot of research on this too that we've been meaning to do some more research on. But yeah, it's like one of the major problem yeah. spots for it. Yeah, I guess uh, as a simple example to, to do it, imagine you have a for loop which loops 100 times and you have some if condition happening inside the for loop. Um, so you have two possible branches and you repeat that 100 times. And imagine if you... If you really had it going one or other way, uh, then possibly you could say, oh, okay, this branch is executed faster than this branch. So, and when you repeat it 100 times, it's multiplied by 100 times. So you can figure out uh, that uh, if, if it went this way, it's different uh, by the execution time from when it went this way. But it should not happen. If, if this happens, it breaks your security. So uh, you basically have to execute two branches. And if it's within the for loop, you have to execute uh, uh, basically um, two, two branches to the power of 100. So this is, of course, a problem. Um, so, yeah, yeah so that's, uh, that's kind of uh, a problem with fully homomorphic encryption. And that's why, uh, like, what we usually think of, uh, of a normal Turing-complete program uh, probably... Uh, not necessarily is not necessarily always practical there because you have to execute uh, all the possibilities. You just you just described uh, why most compilers or all compilers can't optimize loops, or at least some loops. So, you know, like compilers, like if you if you compile something, I, I come from scientific computing, so like if you try and uh, have your compiler optimize various loops to be more efficient. If you include arbitrary logic in there, like if statements, then they just they just basically ignore them because of that branching, because of the all of the possibilities that can go from each loop um, as you iterate through that loop. And I guess it, it, it's the same for like these types of things. You can't deterministically figure out what the possible space is if you have like these kind of branching out possibilities as you iterate through a loop. And right. if you get to like the final execution state, that I mean, I guess people in this space intuit what Merkle trees look like. Each each level of the loop creates another level of the tree, and if you get to the very bottom, that thing is possibly incredibly large. And searching that space uh, deterministically is very difficult. Yeah, and then we also expand on this with the other problems of homomorphic encryption, like ciphertext expansion, and suddenly this becomes a very unmanageable problem. So does this limit the amount, the size of the the computation you can actually do on on your current proof of con concepts? Um, limit the size of the computation. The not Sorry. not yeah the so like Com complexity of the, the complexity problem, is the right word I'm looking for. Yeah. Oh okay yeah so circuit no uh, there's absolutely nothing that limits the size or the the complexity of our of our logic. Um, the, it's mostly just the language implementation. It's not really, it's not a real programming language. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, just a list of, of logic gates that we perform. Um, well, so I guess, uh, I guess you can still practically say that, yes, it, uh, it does limit what you can do because like if, imagine you have a 
for loop with if condition inside, then I guess the circuit for that would be incredibly large. Of course, you can still do it, but it will be uh, very, very slow. And uh, the intuition about writing uh, normal programs is a little different from intuition about writing uh, programs for fully homomorphic encryption, uh, probably exactly because of this problem. But at the same time, if you want to just process a very, very large amount of data, maybe in MapReduce fashion or something, uh, then I guess it's uh, it's actually still practical because you can have not uh, necessarily super complex program being executed um, uh uh, being executed once you have something simple being executed multiple times and, and because of this too as well it's like as you start encrypting more and more data um obviously your ciphertext gets much much larger so one bit gives you two kilobytes like right now so uh if you want to do like something like MapReduce, right it, you'd have to encrypt a lot of data and this and we're talking about a huge ciphertext right so it's not that practical for large data sets yet. Um, it's more or less practical for very simple executions uh, and research right now is mostly what, what we're trying, what we're hinting at and trying to use this for. Yeah, like you said earlier, this was a massive step forward in the um, efficiency of doing the algorithm and not necessarily the efficiency of the output of the algorithm. And, and, and exactly. for in, in, in public blockchain contexts, if you're going to be storing all these ciphertexts in the blockchain, that then becomes quite a big deal. You need you need that other part of the research to move forward as well for practical yeah. application. Well, I want to find a way. Your at Berlin thing. It sounds like you can actually prove computation to some degree using the blockchain. So you could do off-layer two solutions, which do the FHE yeah. and sit and share the data around. And what you've built is basically a proof construct. So you can use the blockchain for what it's really meant to be used for right. and nothing else, which is yeah. really what we want to strive for anyway. Everybody's yeah, right. sharing this stuff. You don't want to put your ciphertext on the blockchain. That's clunky and nasty. What you want to do is prove that the result you've gotten from somebody doing an off-chain calculation is correct. So what this is, is kind of like an alternative to TrueBit, only kind of like more, um, I don't know if alternative is the right word, but- I'm not alternative now. Yeah, um, uh, it's, it's more, it's just a, uh, yeah, a way of sort of verifying. Analogous. Sort of, yeah, analogous. Maybe even like a compliment to, to TrueBit. Mm -hmm. So TrueBit has the problem right now where you'd have to share your input data, literally gotten everybody in order to get your, your challenge results and whatnot and the bounties collected and yada, yada, yada. Um, with this, you can do those bounties and those challenges and prove them Prove your prove that somebody's you know mucking around with the system or or doing something um, in in an incorrect way through a consensus mechanism consensus layer like a blockchain um, and uh, it would basically allow you to sort of um, uh, you know not broadcast your your results to the world but still have people be able to calculate on your data if you give it to them and prove that they did a, at least these steps. And if somebody also wants to run calculations on this data and come up with um, their own proof and it contradicts yours, then there could be a resolution or yada, yada, yada. But right now what you've done is, is you said, hey, we can prove that I did this and I'm obeying these rules that you've provided on this layer two solution. And you gave me this ciphertext and this is my output. And if somebody else were to do the same thing, they would be able to prove that there was something wrong if yours was not correct or something like that. 
it kind yeah, of right. there. Yeah, so basically you've used it as a truth truth mechanism, which is really what a blockchain yeah. is supposed to be. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the higher implications of this kind of work and where you see this this project going. Um, what what do you think? Uh, what do you think? When do you think people will start using these kind of things? Um, how far are, are we from? Um, I know that you said on the last program we're at least ten years out from really good um, homomorphic encryption, fully homomorphic. No, we said we said we're at least no. 10, 10 years out to start asking good questions about where we'll be. Okay, sure. Then um, where do you where do you okay then. That really puts a hamper on my question there, Corey. Sorry. <laughs> where are we going to be? <laughs> Where's, where are we? What's next? How is, how's this, um, who do you think uh, is going to be interested in this right away? Um, I think a lot of people are actually going to be really interested in it, mainly because people are using solutions like uh, trusted execution environments, which are actually really horrible um, and not good for decentralized environments because they are trusted execution environments, not trustless execution environments. Um, FHE represents a software-based control uh, in this respect, and it is a it is a trustless compute, computation environment, really. Um, so that that's like the one thing that we're that I'm at least really excited about for it. Um, whether or not it even has it ends up having amazing uh, blockchain use cases, it's it's just this idea that we can have trustless computations at the software level not the hardware level. And that's huge just by itself. Um, yeah. yeah. If you think about it, like, sorry, it allows you to abstract away the trust and, and not put it in. Like we should, we should never care about the hardware if we can. Right. Right. And the, the problems are that there, there is the notion of security in FHE where it is like, it's not uh, the greatest security because the schemes for it are, are obviously malleable. So given a ciphertext and a key, you can actually change the, the ciphertext of it and give you something that that may be dangerous for you to, to reveal to some to to the same party that computed it. Um, so there's a lot of room for research here, and and you're asking where are we? I think we're honestly a good two three years out, maybe from this being like the seeing wide scale adoption, um, maybe or or even the first practical implementation of this stuff. Yeah, well, I, I would say that it, at least the performance of FHE feels already practical for something like privacy-preserving smart contracts. Whether you can have practical privacy-preserving smart contracts, it still kind of needs to be researched a little bit. But I think we are very, very close. Um, but, of course, implementing is one thing, getting that adopted is another thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, and if you, uh, basically what's, what options do we have right now for, uh, for private computations? We have... Uh, fully homomorphic encryption, we have multi-party computation and trusted execution environments. Trusted execution environments, they they are fast, but they are uh, currently broken. And in principle, uh, you always probably will have uh, hardware side channel attacks possible. So uh, you cannot really fully trust a stranger to execute the thing for you. Um, you uh, you can make it harder for the stranger to figure out what's going on, but I think it's still possible. Um, with multi-party computation, it's a little bit better. But first of all, you if you if your computers collude, they will figure out what's going on. And also, uh, also it's it's actually currently requiring 
a lot of data exchange, like gigabytes, if not terabytes of data for executing, let's say, a simple smart contract, especially if you have more than three parties computing your thing. So uh, multi-party computation is a little bit not practical yet. And it was believed that fully homomorphic encryption is not practical yet, but we show that at least we can do 7,000 operations per second, which I think is at least performance-wise practical for uh, for privacy-preserving smart contracts. Um, and so, yeah, I guess performance-wise it's there, but uh, there are some other things which need to be worked on. And yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, it's probably... Um, it's probably a couple of years until uh, until we have like a practical platform for doing private but not really fast computations, which are all right for smart contracts. And that kind of starts so, off with like why you do like how anything slowly gets better and better is that it's practical for a very small subset of things that really really need that type of functionality. Um, and over time, as it's developed, then the efficiencies gains, which then opens it up to a broader audience or broader use cases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so maybe I, I think that uh, it probably will work for smart contracts first, and then there will be economic incentives to accelerate that. Some ASIC manufacturers jump on it and uh, make it, let's say, another 100 times faster. And then we are suddenly at about a megahertz uh, uh, megahertz. Uh, uh, performance and uh, and uh, maybe we can do something more complex like I don't know um, fingerprint recognition or like face recognition uh, without exposing uh, exposing anyone's privacy to uh, to some strangers and uh, and then like a whole a whole bunch of applications which are currently done by central services probably could be done over encrypted data um, but still. Uh, still, even even then, I wouldn't use that to uh, to do like performance uh, critical uh, applications. Because let's say if you if something takes uh, a year or like let's say if something takes several days to analyze uh, on like real CPUs in unencrypted form, in encrypted form, it would be uh, it would be actually way uh, slower to do, even if you accelerate it in any possible way. So you really need to you still be focused on some subset of operations which really require private data. So let me give you let me ground this for the, a minute, and you, I know we got to wrap this up in a second. But um, one problem that was presented to me that I think this could immediately kind of solve is people want to use cryptocurrency for royalty management and um, possession of assets um, in terms of, say, the music industry. So if you have a music, if you're in the music industry and you want to use cryptocurrency as your backing mechanism for actually, uh, you know, uh, licensing a particular piece of uh, work, um, they can't do that right now with the current smart contract system because guess what? They don't want to expose what their their licensing agreements are. They don't want to expose who gets a percentage of what. They don't want to expose who who how, you know who gets a take. How much does Spotify get? How much does the music label get? How mm. much does the artist get? Nobody wants the world to know that data. This doesn't just apply to royalty management. It also applies to say um, uh, bills of lading and and supply chain when you're doing tra uh, tra uh, transport from point A to point B. They don't want to expose their deals to everybody, but they still want to operate on the data. 
And they want to do it in a trustless way that's backed with some sort of token security. Right now, they can't do that because they can't keep it private. They can't do it in a way where they, unless they use something like Threshold Relay where they're passing the documents around, but even then, like they would rather do it in some automatic, automated way and prove that it's been done correctly. Mm. Fully homomorphic encryption at a very minor scale, just calculating percentages, just basically right. saying, you get this cut, you get this cut, you get this cut, um, can take the rule set as the ciphertext and output the result as necessary. And nobody necessarily knows what exactly is going on in the little black box of the virtual machine. Um, and they can still, and the fact that they can prove it on the truth mechanism and even make changes to um, to uh, to balances that maybe e- exist off chain and can be reflected on chain through some resolution layer, which is also hidden and also a, a kind of a black box system. Uh, to me, sounds really really interesting because then they can do their calculations in aggregate. They can have their total balances committed in aggregate, but they don't actually have all that information exposed. And this is not complicated programming. This is mm-hmm. not a very t- this is not fingerprint analysis. This is basic multiplication and addition problems that are all over the financial world. And people want to be able to use cryptocurrency to kind of back this because they like the the features that it has, except it doesn't have privacy. And so I see the fully homomorphic encryption, um, the stuff that you guys are building um, to be kind of the thing that might bridge the gap and make some more broad adoption into this space because it will enable these kind of transactions to occur um, through a trustless mechanism such as a blockchain and resolve uh, on the blockchain as a re- on the resolution layer. So um, yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, looking forward to seeing how this progresses. Is there anything we should have asked you that we didn't? Um, I think we got our bases covered. Yeah, I feel much better about um, where you, like what you've done where you're at, what the, maybe some of the potential issues of where uh, moving forward and kind of the timelines associated with it. And I hope that our audience can too. Um, how can people reach out and get a hold of you with respect to this work or even the proxy re-encryption stuff? You can email me at john at newcipher.com or you can use my personal email at me at johnpacific.com. Yeah, or you can email me at michael at newcipher.com or actually I would recommend to go to newcipher.com website and find a link to our Discord and then you can ask all sorts of questions and uh, uh, every any of us will be happy to respond. Thanks, guys. Yeah, cool. Appreciate Thanks, that. Guys. Great. And as usual, you can reach us, uh, Corey, at Corpetti on Twitter and myself uh, at Colin Couchet on Twitter. And uh, yeah, Thanks for, thanks for coming on, guys.